Jesus, there they all there and there again, hanging out in their hammocks, messing around, down by the beach with the big old headphones on, going, don't look at me, I'm busy listening to the Irish in Sweden podcast on me summer holidays. My name is Philip O'Connor, and Jesus, lads, has been roasting the last few days. Now, the thing about uh, summer in, in Sweden is quite like summer in Ireland, right? By the time you hear this, it could be absolutely teeming down with rain, cats and dogs, right? But uh, over the last, uh, this week here in Stockholm, it has been absolutely roasting. It's uh, one of those instances where it's actually warmer uh, outside than what it is inside. So you can't even have a window open in the evening. But it's lovely. We won't complain. Uh, when this podcast started off, we were in the deep uh, darkness of winter. So it's, uh, and it's only for a few weeks as well. It doesn't go mad altogether. Jesus, grace, the tomb bag will kill me the next time uh, she sees me giving out about the warm weather and that kind of thing. But um, it's been lovely altogether. I hope you're having a very enjoyable summer. Um, I, I don't know, you, you can you can almost put your finger on it here, certainly in the city of Stockholm anyway, and in the other places that I've been around midsummer and that, uh, you know, there's a, a spring in people's step, you know, when they can sort of throw off the big winter jacket and be out and about and be out in nature and that kind of thing. So I hope you have the opportunity to be out and to enjoy it. I hope you're getting a few hours sleep up there in Lulio. I know it's probably not easy at the moment because you're going to have to be wearing your sort of sleeping mask because it's daylight the whole time there. But uh, I hope you're having the chance to enjoy it. Thanks very much. It was a great response, not least on LinkedIn to the interview with Marge with Marjorie uh, Sundstrom last week about her work at the Marriott Hotel. Again, apologize, apologies for the sound quality there. That was a great interview. So it was like one of those things that we just wanted to get it out there despite the few issues that we had. And she's a fantastic person, really, like certain people have a vocation for their job and Margie is somebody like that she just she just loves the job I'd say she'd do it if she didn't get paid at all I hope she gets bloody well paid for the great work she does there but uh, and you love to talk to people like that who are passionate about the things that they do and indeed there's a couple of them uh, very different people coming on up on this particular show uh, remember this is a community supported podcast and I was thinking one of these days I'm going to do a video for social media, right? And basically it's going to be the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, where you have all the bullets whizzing around as the lads are trying to take the beach in the, in the beginning of it and sound and everything else like that. And at the end of it, one person decides to contribute to the podcast on Patreon because it feels like war every time I have to go, oh, Jesus, lads, come on. You know, but it has to be done, unfortunately. The lights have to be kept on and it's getting more and more expensive to do it. So if you want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash man in Stockholm and you can support it there you can do it from 20 crowns a month if you want but 50 crowns a month would be brilliant uh, get in there 600 crowns a year it's not much it's you know not the price of a local subscription or, a, or an Irish independent subscription or anything else like that. and it's all for you uh, you can also switch the show on 123-2424-166. That's 123-2424-166. And that would help greatly. And one of these days I will snare Michelle Cotter and I'll talk to her about Revolut because, uh, as I said before, their process is a little bit weird for businesses. They want basically, basically want your mammy to ring up and sort of guarantee that you are who you say you are and that you're not trying to rip them off or that kind of thing. So uh, one thing before I go... Um, as I said, it was great to get all the, f- the feedback about Marjorie, particularly on uh, Lin- LinkedIn. But I saw something there. There's a, an Irish music festival after taking place this past weekend, right? From the 1st of July to the 3rd of July. And it's the Love Leedens Irish Music Festival. And that's the kind of thing that I would love to be able to bring you and be able to talk to people about. But I can't do it if I don't know about it in advance, right? And I know I come across as a terrible fucking know-it-all at the best of times. But the fact of the matter is that I don't know about all these things. So if you happen to see them... 
uh, that, that festival was taking place in Slumstar, which is a beautiful little town. Uh, if you happen to see something like that, anything at all, I'd rather, you know, 10 people tell me about that festival and at the end of it going, yeah, look, lads, I know about this already, than nobody tell me and it passes by. So, like, I would have loved to have helped those people to, to reach out, to reach you guys, the listeners of this podcast. And if you're interested, go along and, and support it. And if, you know, if you're not, at least you knew it was happening, maybe we could do something around the music on that particular episode. But this time I didn't know it was happening until this week. And it's too late because by the time this episode uh, is out, the festival will be over. So, just you know, we can ask them we can have a look back and see if it was successful or anything but it's always nicer to do these things and to give them uh, a little bit of publicity beforehand so if you see anything like that drop me a line on uh, on instagram or on facebook or on linkedin or send me a text or whatever so jay's been now you know where to find me you can leave a comment on one of the podcasts you can do whatever you like but get in touch if you see anything that's happening uh, of an irish bent at all and i suppose the, the last part of that is I was, there is a new podcast coming, I've mentioned this before, for the Global Irish Community, that's going to be coming after the summer, I postponed it thanks to um, one of the interview uh, subjects disappearing, at the very last minute to this person who I, you know, I actually moved back to launch to the beginning of the summer, and I went, no, no, I can't do that, so I've dropped that person completely now, and we'll do it a different way, but um, I keep saying about that podcast is there are no ordinary Irish people abroad, and there are no ordinary people in the Swedish Irish community, right? There are only extraordinary stories. So if you hear of anybody, uh, you know, who's working in academia, who's working up in Lulia, if they have any sort of a story to tell, uh, get in touch, you know, and if we can get them on the podcast, we will. And there's no shortage of people. There's always ideas. Like, I always have a list of people I want to talk to for various different reasons. Sometimes because a festival's coming up or a book is coming out or an album is coming out or whatever. But sometimes it's nice to just have chats. And if we go back to when we spoke to Carl Murphy, the brilliant Irish musician who plays in the pubs here, um, who congratulations on his recent blue belt in jiu-jitsu. I know how much he was longing for that one, right? But that was one of those spontaneous conversations that somebody had cancelled an interview and I got Carl on and it was just a great conversation about his time here in the pandemic and mental health and all of those things, you know? So keep getting in touch with your ideas and should look at it. If you don't feel like doing it, you don't have to. Just listen, get on with it, enjoy it. Throw in a few, Bob, if you can. Right, our first interviewee this week is... One of my favourite people in all of Sweden, right? And it's amazing what life does to you. The way it throws you together with people that you absolutely would not expect. And this is a person who became... She's one of the most important people in my life. Because without her, the Stockholm Gales and Gaelic football in the Nordic region just wouldn't have been become what it is it wouldn't have been able to sort of take that place in our lives and her name is Anna Rungord and you'll hear where she's from and that she explains all that in the beginning but she just sort of appeared uh, in my mailbox uh, wanting to know if we were going to start a women's team and from there you know probably the greatest success that we've had really has been on the women's side and getting so many women not least non-Irish women involved in the sport of Gaelic football and now my own daughter is is playing for the team and that's, you know, that just goes to show the effect that Anna had had. She's a powerful woman altogether, speaks fluent Mandarin Chinese, has lived for a long time in Asia, and that whole story, she gets into some of it as well, you know. But I just thought that I'd catch up with her. Uh, I know she was down in France on her holidays, and then she came back, and I said, I'd have to catch up with Anna, because uh, it's just it's been a while now. Because she came in, took over the whole thing, played, was a maniac, but best player on the team for many years. And, uh, and then, of course, she went off, and she had her children, and that kind of thing. And that's... The lads can do that and they're back like, you know, three days later. But when women do that, the women in the club do that, it takes, you know, six months, a year. And sometimes, unfortunately, maybe they, they can never find their way back to the club. But uh, so we get into all that. There is a tournament coming up in late August. And of course, we'll be talking about that more down the road. But before we talk about the future of Gaelic football in the Nordic region, let's talk a little bit about the past with the magical, the wonderful, the amazing Anna Rangard. Mm-hmm. 
Aside from the heat and your lovely new haircut, which isn't that new at all, Anna Rungard, how are you this fine June day in Stockholm? Oh, uh, I'm fine, Phil. Thank you so much for asking. I'm doing fine. You know, I'm, I'm busy, but uh, I'm just back from a few days in France and a few days in Skåne, where I'm from. You know, you know that you speak a Swedish. Beautiful so place. So, yeah. And you can tell from my accent as well that that's where I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, yes, it's, 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 it's almost like a whole different language. I remember being down mm. in Helsingborg one time and mm. um, I, I would stopped at a, a petrol station there to fill the car and people started speaking to me. I'd only been in Sweden, Sweden about four years. I had no idea what they were saying, <laughs> Anna, but thankfully I had learned by the time I, I got you uh, into the, or by the time you came into the Stockholm Gales. But Anna, I suppose let's start way back in, in Shanghai because you're mm. famous, you're immortal at this stage oh. as one of the founding members of the Stockholm Gales, one of the first committee members. Um, how did you start playing Gaelic football in China? Yeah, it's a, that's a funny story. I think for a long time, I was probably the only Swede playing Gaelic football, at least in Asia, uh, I think. But um, so, yeah, I, I was living in Beijing first. I was a student in Beijing and I was moving down to Shanghai to, um, you know, try out the waters in Shanghai to try and get a job and things like that. This was a long time ago. Um, and I didn't know anyone in Shanghai. I didn't have any friends in Shanghai, but I had a few student friends in Beijing, Irish friends from Beijing. And they told me, why don't you get in touch with the Gaelic community in Shanghai? They will take good care of you. Uh, so that's kind of how it started. I got some email address to one of the guys in the Shanghai Gaelic uh, club. I sent them an email and they invited me, obviously, to come to training right away. And yeah, and that's how it started. I went to one training session and I didn't understand a word of what any of these Irish people were saying, but I loved it. I loved the community. I loved the atmosphere. And obviously I loved the game as well, even though I didn't understand it at all in the beginning. But uh, yeah, that's how it started. Uh, did you have any sort of sporting background when you were growing up in Skåne? Did you play football? Did you play handball? I played football, just regular football uh, for a while, you know, a little bit uh, on and off. I wasn't very, uh, you know, a professional or anything. I just played a little bit in school and after school and so on. And what was it then when you arrive into that social situation and somebody says, OK, you're very welcome, but you have to play this sport that you've never seen before. Yeah. Can you remember what that first training session was like for you? Uh, it was hot. I remember it was in the summer. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I can't really remember any of the details. I just remember that, you know, I had this football that I was supposed to hold in my hand and run with it. And I was pretty confused. I, I remember I didn't want to do it first. At first, I remember I came out just to meet the people and I thought that would be fine to just to come and say hi. You know, I'm going to see I'm going to stand on the sideline and see if I want to play this or not. But the day would have none of that. They were like, no, come on, come on. You have to like, get on the pitch. <laughs> You have to play with us and so yeah so I, that's that's what i remember i think and um, when was uh, because obviously gaelic football is a huge thing in asia now right you have the asian games mm. where people come from thousands of miles around what was the first game the first competitive game you played in Anna? yeah that was i still remember that one though that was uh, that was amazing it was in shenzhen it was part of the china games because back then this was in 2007 no, 2006, I think, or maybe 2005 even, around that time. Uh, so at that time, they, they already had the China Games. Uh, they had the Asia Games as well. Uh, but uh, so, it, and it was hosted by the Shenzhen team. So Shenzhen also had a Gaelic football team. It was, I was so surprised that all of these like 
you know, not smaller cities. Obviously, Shenzhen is a major city. But, millions of people there. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, there were Irish people there as well. They have set up their own Gaelic football team and everything. So, yeah, so we went down to Shenzhen and played the, the game there. That was my first competitive game. And I loved it. It was so much fun. And I think I actually did really well. I had only played for a few weeks. And I was surprised by myself that I could actually manage to, to play a proper game. Did you feel confused during that game at all? Or did you feel, okay, I belong here. All the things they've showed me, I could do them. <laughs> no, I was very confused. And I remember, especially when we changed sides and we were, you know, going in the other direction, scoring in the other direction, I was, I was very confused. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like, like everyone, I suppose, is in the beginning when, when you don't know the game and, you know, you're not, you know <laughs> when you take too many steps and with a ball yeah. in your hand and all of that. So, so I think I did all of those calls and you know mistakes in the beginning did you win the game Anna oh I can't remember I'm sure I think we did I think we won the the, the, the tournament actually doesn't surprise me one bit <laughs> in all that time how did like off the field the Irish people that you were living with, did you have a lot of contact with them outside of training as well mm. then yeah of course, I mean they become my they became my family uh, and my community in Shanghai. I mean, it was I think it was because I or it, I'm I'm certain it was because of them that I just continued playing because I didn't want to lose that amazing community that was surrounded by the Irish people. So uh, that they really took me in. We would hang out all the time. We would do everything together. You know, we went on trips together and we went partying, obviously, all the time together. We were always out at night and, you know, we would have dinner on the Wednesday evening together. And, you know, so yes, they became my everything in a way. And it was also, it wasn't only Irish people. Of course, the core were the Irish people, but it was a very international crowd and I think everyone that that joined that community felt the same way everyone felt very welcome and um, you know well taken care of and you played in the Asian games then on a couple of occasions yeah mm, absolutely. what was that like because I mean that's you're talking thousands of players from all over Asia coming together right yeah oh, it was amazing events those ones I mean they were long so the China games were always we could always do them just over a weekend I remember uh, it was fairly quick and uh, you know manageable but the, the Asia games already back then you had to arrive in on the Friday and you couldn't leave until the Monday or something like that because you know we were play we were playing the whole weekend and they were huge games of course a lot of people a lot of a lot of you know games to be played and uh, I was always very nervous I remember <laughs> because oh, yeah. there were all these people yeah I was always so nervous before nowadays I mean now I haven't played for so many years you know that because I haven't been out but uh, now I haven't played for a long time but you know as you kind of get more as I got more experienced, I also felt a little bit more relaxed before games. But back then, I would always be very, very nervous. What would you be nervous of? Would you be nervous of making a mistake or, or you know, not knowing what you were doing? Yeah, I was nervous of not being able to be, you know, a team member, I think. like Because a, a, like a, I always did pretty well on the training. So people had this high you know they they thought I was this great player and I uh, not great player but they thought I was good enough of a player you know uh, to to be on the games and be on be on the team and all of that and and then I think I was just afraid of the of not be able to perform and not to be able to to do my part uh, with the team 
It's, I always find it amazing what you and me talk about these days because I've only known you since 2010 and you've always been a brilliant player to me. I didn't see that time <laughs> when you were learning how to play that game. And any team you've ever been in, you've been a sort of a cornerstone of it. And oh, um, then, yeah, I mean, let's talk about how you and I met because obviously yeah. we were starting up the Stockholm Gales and the next yes. thing I got a mail from you that left me in no doubt about what would happen if we didn't start a ladies team. Were you <laughs> looking to play uh, Gaelic football when you came back to Stockholm then? Yes, absolutely. Because that was one of my, you know, griefs or what do you say? Like one of my, that, that was one of the things I was so sad about leaving Shanghai that I would leave the, the Gaelic the football and the team and the Irish people and that whole community. I was like, I need to recreate this when I go back home. I didn't want to go back home to this old Swedish environment and only hang out with my Swedish friends you know I so I and then to my sadness I realized that there wasn't like a proper ladies team in Stockholm and I thought and there wasn't really like a proper club at that time either I mean I you you guys had started to hang out and you know you started playing and so on but they weren't really that proper setup right mm. that we have now um, but the, so I thought oh I, I need to fix this I mean if I want to play Gaelic football I need to I guess I need to do this myself I need to start this myself that's what I was uh, that's the conclusion I came to um, do you remember that time when you first met us? Because I think we'd probably trained once and we we're only really starting the process when you got involved. And we kind of came to the same conclusion. We went, OK, if you want to be in this boat, you're going to have to paddle as hard as everybody else. <laughs> we, we, did you expect that to happen or did you expect us to just sort of do everything uh, for the women's team? Uh, no, you know, I've been around Irish people for so long before. So I think I so had that... no expectations whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> no expectations whatsoever. I knew I have to do the heavy lifting here. <laughs> no. You did a fine no. job of it. How did you go about finding players then? Oh yes, oh, that was so funny. That that was such a funny story. And I also think it was a funny story how I got you uh you know engaged with you know like the, like how i got in touch with you as well because i don't know if you remember but I, I tried to reach out to you several times before you even replied to me oh you dear what <laughs> I, I, I just didn't respond that's very bad i have to apologize for that don't I? <laughs> Isn't it? so i was like this guy really doesn't want me to play gaelic football but i thought i'm not gonna give up i'm gonna continue to try to get him on the line i'm i think i i in emailed you a few times and I messaged you before I got you on a call or something. I kind of ambushed you and called you up or something. Yeah, you did the right <laughs> thing. All right. Anyway, I remember that. But uh, yes, so trying to get players. So, I mean, obviously it was just me for a while training with you guys. Mm. Um, but then I thought, okay, now I need to try and get some ladies in here to, to, to start a real team. And I remember be, we were out drinking in, in the pub one night. And yeah, I've I heard just, that happens all right. <laughs> yeah. And I just started, you know, asking girls uh, that were in the pub if they wanted to come and play Gaelic football with me. And I handed out my phone number. So I, there were quite a few of them that were interested there and then, you know, in the middle of the night after a number of years. And <laughs> I got their number. I was I was very adamant that I needed to have their number. Not they couldn't just take mine. Um, and the day after I had like four numbers or five numbers or something. And I I called them up the day after to try and get them to come out to training. And one girl, Maria, she she uh, she took the hook and she came out and started playing. And then it was just the two of us for a while. That's but that's how it started. She was a Swede as well, wasn't she? Small blonde girl. 
Yes, exactly. exactly. Fantastic. She had a daughter who was a soccer player, uh, who was just a fantastic soccer player as well, but she had a really bad temper. She came out and played football with us once or twice, but uh, <laughs> she was uh, like, when things didn't go her way, she went nuts altogether. But Maria, I actually met Maria about five or six years ago. She was working in a hotel somewhere in Hagerstein, and I oh. went to check in and she was there, like a magnificent woman altogether. But yeah, she turned up, she actually <laughs> played at the first tournament in Copenhagen as well, or yeah. she was definitely there. I don't know if she got injured, yeah. But that was, she, Maria was the first victim that you managed to get on board yeah exactly she was the first victim i managed to get on board and then she invited one of her friends whom i have forgotten the name of now uh, marlin or something like that i think it was one of the girls that she worked with uh, so she came along and then she brought the girl along and you know and that's just how it started and then after mm. a while there were four or five of us or something like that and that's uh, and then we were a proper team <laughs> yeah it, it didn't take it long you know this is the great thing about you know having you come in and just take over because it opened up a different world to us Anna because we'd be sort of looking for Irish girls who played the game before and that kind of thing and I don't think they want to be that involved but when it came from you and you started to bring in all these Swedish people then the Irish girls felt okay this is there already so we can just sort of yeah. naturally join in yeah, yeah. do you remember uh, it's a very hot day in Stockholm today do you remember yeah. the first day we played a tournament down in Copenhagen and how hot it was down there uh, I remember that tournament I can't remember it being really hot but I, I remember that tournament it was uh, it was a lot of fun we went down with a, with a minibus I think we certainly did yeah driving yeah. we got the ferry across from Helsingborg to Helsingor yeah. uh, down in your part of the world there and dro- drove down to Copenhagen and was it mm-hmm. on Arsenal's Vejen I think it was where they had a rugby pitch and then we had the women's pitch laid out beside it you know um how many years did you end up playing for because you sort of mo- you moved back to Asia then after a while didn't you yeah exactly I moved to Hong Kong in 2018 so I played until that time well you know I was on and off because then I had my children as well, yeah. 2013 and 2015, I was, you know, I took some time off to, to go and have children and, and, and not play Gaelic football. So I was on and off uh, until 2018. Yeah. And did you hook up with anybody over there in Asia again? Or did you think, ah, I'm kind of done now, I'm retiring? Uh, you know, I wanted, I, I followed them on Instagram, the, the Hong Kong Gaelic football team, because obviously from my time in Shanghai, I remember the Hong Kong football team being this really, really good team. I mean, they used to have some really brilliant players mm. uh, and they were always the ones that we were scared of meeting. It was like, oh, no, now we have to play Hong, the Hong Kong team. So I was really keen on getting into it when I when I moved uh, over there. But uh, then I just it was just too much for me work wise. Uh, I was mm. traveling a lot and it was I mean, it was just too hectic. I just could I didn't get into it, um, unfortunately. And then we left and, uh, you know, um, COVID came and there was a lot of uh, demonstrations and, th- and so on. And we, and we decided to leave Hong Kong after two and a half years. So, no, mm. unfortunately, I never got into it there. So you kind of came back here in the middle of 2020. You rocked up in Sweden again, yeah? Mm-hmm, exactly. And we still, we still haven't seen you at training yet, but we'll get back to that. <laughs> um, Anna, tell us a little bit about the work you do, because I always found that fascinating as well as we got to know one another. That mm-hmm. Even back at that stage, you were working for Hennessy Maulitz, uh, H&M, mm-hmm. and you were, mm-hmm. but you weren't working with fashion and you weren't working with sales. Mm-hmm. You were working with sustainability. Was that something mm-hmm. you had started doing in Asia already? Yes, I got into it a little bit on a banana shell, maybe uh, you can say, because I spoke Mandarin. I mean, I was obviously I was in China because I had studied Mandarin and I spoke, spoke Mandarin. I speak Mandarin and I got a job with H&M to be a what, what uh, we called at the 
time a code of conduct auditor. So I would uh, travel to the factories to speak to the factory management about, you know, labor rights and uh, how to be an ethical employer and things like that, and how to like really live according to the code of conduct that the H that the H M group had drafted at that time. So so that's kind of how I got into the social part of sustainability. So for me, when I talk about sustainability, it's not just about the planet and the, and the environmental piece of it. It's also about the social part of it and the, and the, uh, the people uh, behind the, the clothes that we wear. So, so that was how I got into sustainability. Yeah. How were you received by factory managers in China? Here's this young Swedish mm. woman speaking Mandarin, walking into my factory to tell me how I'm supposed to treat people. How, how did that go? Yeah, I think I was, uh, you know, it, it went fine. I think it went fine. Uh, it, uh, they, they were always pretty, everyone was always pretty impressed and, you know, surprised, I suppose, that I that I spoke Mandarin. But after a while, you get to know them as well. You kind of go to the same factories, facilities over and over again. And, and we had some really good conversation. And I think they um, appreciated that I came with another perspective as well. Um, you know, the more of the Swedish perspective and where I could, you know, tell them a little bit about uh, this, the, the Swedish history uh, when it comes to labor rights and, and so on and try to um, impose that. But of course, it was very tough discussions, very hard. And I think a lot of them were also trying to uh, not be transparent with me and try to, you know, be, um, you know, show, show us fake documents and things like that, which is very common in, uh, in that type of work. What are the biggest challenges? Because, you know, we hear about sweatshops, we hear about Nike, you know, selling mm. shoes for $200 for a pair that are made for six and the person who makes them gets maybe a dollar if they're lucky. I mean, that's a very sort of Western way of looking at these things. Haven't been on the ground in those factories, Anna. What do you think the biggest challenges that they face or that they faced in your time are or were? Well, I think it's uh, it, it's not easy to be a factory manager or to be especially in between when you're the one that are making the the, the, the garments, so to say, because you're usually pretty small in relationship to the brand and you're also pretty small in relationship to your own suppliers. So the ones that you're buying your fabric from and the thread and things like that. So you're kind of squeezed in the middle a bit. So I, I don't think it's always that easy. And I think the purchasing practices that that is, is kind of the norm today with our within the fashion and apparel industry is probably one of the main main challenges for them that that brands have an upper hand in in a sense when it comes to negotiating price and negotiating terms and lead times and and so forth and they have to I mean, they have a lot of requirements. They know everyone knows what is uh, what is required from them. They need to pay, uh, you know, a proper wage, at least the minimum wage, but preferably even even more than that. And they know that there are lots of different requirements on on uh, environmental standards and so on them. But then they're also always squeezed and pushed on price. Uh, so I think that's probably um, a hard uh, that's a hard balance for them to to meet. Um, on that price issue, I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, and I don't, I'm not talking specifically about Hennis and Maurits here. It's one thing to say that, you know, uh, we make shoes, we make clothes, we care about these things. And yet, in the same sentence, I go, yeah, but we also want it to be as cheap as possible because we make money. How aware of, you know, the clients you have and the companies that you deal with, how aware are they of their own sort of part in this, this whole ecosystem? 
Yeah, I think also worth mentioning now is that I don't work for H&M anymore. I don't know if no, you exactly. said that yeah. before, but I, I mean, obviously I don't represent them anymore. And, and nowadays I, I run my own business and work with different clients, just like yep. you said. Um, I think everyone today uh, within our industry is very aware of, of these challenges. And, and But I'm not sure that the, everyone has an active uh, strategy and approach on how to solve it. Uh, a lot of the a lot of brands and a lot of companies today they have what we call code of conducts and they make sure that or they you know they think they make sure that their products are uh, being produced accordingly according to this code of conduct uh, but there is so much fraud and so much non-transparency going on about what is actually happening on the factory floor uh, so it's it's very hard and and um, and it requires an active purchasing practice strategy from the brand to make sure that uh, you know that you don't violate these things and not everyone has that that's for sure Okay, so I want to set up a company producing Gaelic football uh, kit, right? Socks and shorts and shirts and bags and that kind of thing. If mm. I come to you and say, okay, I'm going to buy these things from China and I need you to help me to do that in an ethical way. How do I go about that? How hard is it to set up those supply chains? Um, I mean, if you just come from the street and you don't have that much presence in the production country and you don't, you're not a very big buyer, um, it, it, it will be hard for you. So that's why I would recommend to, if you're small, to also start close to you, to start like to not go to China if you're in Sweden, for example. I mean, I would pro then I would start and produce locally or in, in Europe or something where you have more uh, an ability to maybe go and see the factory on a general basis and so on but as you grow and as you get bigger and if you can have more of a presence and close to your production countries then you also have another ability to influence and to be and to be present in uh, in the factories um one of the other things i wanted to ask you about was how we can be more conscientious consumers right so mm. obviously Hennessy and Maurits, Catball, and all these stores that we buy our clothes from. Mm. How do we know that they're making their best effort to make sure that the workers that make these garments are, are properly treated, that they take in our environmental concerns seriously? Is there a way of, of working that out when we go to buy things? I'm not just if you not from just looking at the piece of clothing. I mean, if you just go into the store and you pick out the t-shirt, it will be very hard for you to evaluate that the information but if you're very conscious consumer i mean you can always go on their web pages to to uh, you know have a look at uh, what they're doing there are certain ratings out there as well that you can look for that rates the 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 um, what do you call it the compliance work of certain companies and so on but i think just in general to be a more conscious consumer uh, i think it it comes down to our behavior a lot and how much we are purchasing and and what type of garments we, we purchase. So not buy too much, only buy new when we really need it. Try to buy more and better quality that lasts longer. And uh, also do secondhand, but like buy secondhand and things like that. That's Then you do a favor for the, for the environment, um, so to say. But to make sure the, the working conditions are uh, upheld, then that you would have to do some research as a consumer. 
So not content with being an all-star Nordic Gaelic footballer, a mother of two, you got your start with H&M all those years ago. But then, as you mentioned there, you set up your own business. How mm. how scared were you when you took that step away from the mothership and decided I'm going to do something on my own? Oh, I wasn't that scared, to be honest. Like, it's so weird with me. But but I think when once I decide to do something, when I have, have my mindset to do something, um then you know I just do it uh, there is no kind of second uh, second chance for me then I just decide to do it and I came to I have for many for many years I had kind of been in the process of maybe doing something different than do something else outside of H&M and then when I just realized that oh I want to set up my own business then that was very it was an easy decision actually to 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 take and I also thought it was the perfect timing for me I was in the middle of my life in a way like I if it doesn't work out I can always go and get myself another employment I was you know my kids had they're they're not super small anymore they're they're pretty self going at the moment you know I you know so I, I had a lot of things kind of going for me that made the the decision easier as well to to take and what kind of things are is your business offering now you're working as a sort of a, a sustainability consultant if i've understood it correctly yes well i don't want to call myself a consultant anymore in a sense I, that's kind of how i started but i nowadays i have um i have specialized in coaching and advising towards sustainability professionals within these kind of these brands so people like myself the 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 kind of person I was a few years ago when I was with H&M sustainability leaders people that are driving uh, sustainability and impact within an organization I help and support them and uh, those individuals to do a better job and to have more impact uh, in, in their daily life that's that's my speciality today I'm a coach and advisor that's what I like to call myself and where do you find your customers, Anna, or do they come and find you? Um, I find them, you know, they, they come and find me and I come and find them. Like I do, the only marketing that I do is content marketing on LinkedIn. That's the only, the only thing that I do. And then also, of course, my network. So I have a large network from, from my previous role. I used to work in, a, when I was with H&M, I was working with a lot of other brands as well in different coalitions and things like that. So I have a large network and I know a lot of people. So that of course helps me a lot. But then the only marketing that I do is that I try, I, I, I add value or try to, to um, share my knowledge and experience on LinkedIn. And in that sense, I get people to reach out to me and contact me, or I contact and reach out pe- to people that I realize like what I'm saying and the people that likes, you know, my, my content. I've seen your videos on LinkedIn popping up reasonably regularly and it strikes me it's just like talking to you in person because it's so much common sense as yeah why didn't I think of this beforehand but um, when you look at your business now and the work that you've done have you been able to sort of to, to leverage or to use the Irish connection that you had through Gaelic football do you still have any of those people in your life in your professional life nowadays? I I actually, an old friend of mine have surfaced recently, uh, an old friend of mine from from Shanghai. I would say that he's actually the only one that I'm leveraging at the moment. Uh, his, His name is Patrick and he is like, he's this super sales 
kind of guy, you know, he's like, he's an expert at sales and he's always has been. That's kind of the first thing I noticed about him. And he has supported me when it comes to my sales strategies and things like that. So, uh, and, and he's doing that just from, for, as a, as a friend and, you know, we, we, we're helping each other uh, kind of thing because he's also running his own business. So him, I'm definitely leveraging. Uh, otherwise, otherwise not that many. I should I should get I should get in touch with my network a little bit more my Irish network a bit more. Oh, do, do, do you know what this is what I was thinking because like eventually the link to this podcast is going to go up on Enterprise Ireland and that kind of thing mm. you know board B and Tourism Ireland and I think an awful lot of those companies especially at Enterprise Ireland companies you deal with them would have use for your services and mm. your, your sort of common sense approach. Um, are your customers mostly Swedish or do they come from all over the world? All over the world, all over the world. I mean, of course, a lot of them are Swedish because. I, I think they just relate to me in another way, uh, but uh, but I have clients all over the world in the US and Europe and some in Asia as well. And is there a lot of an Asia focus because you speak Mandarin and because of your history there is a lot of it to do with manufacturing in China that you get uh, asked about? Um, not so much in my business. I mean, that's my expertise. Like that's what I know uh, in and out in a way the, the, the manufacturing of, uh, of, of clothes and also that whole supply chain, the whole value chain of how to make a garment. Um, but it's not, it's not just there. Um, actually, a lot of the focus today is on, on driving change within an organization and how to drive you know, positive change and drive sustainability uh, in an organization. How how different is it doing business in China compared to doing business with the US or Sweden or Ireland, do you think? Um, I think, I mean, I think it's a little bit harder in a way in, in China from my point of view. Um, it's a little bit harder to kind of get the connection maybe. I, I don't know. Um, I think it's getting easier as well in China, to be honest with you. But I have some experience from working in, in Bangladesh. Uh, just, uh, just in the beginning of me setting up my own business, I was really targeting the Bangladeshi market. And, and, and that was a little bit of a struggle because I needed to almost like in order to, make, to, have, to do business there, I almost needed to have a physical entity in the country and things like that. So it wasn't as flexible uh, from an organizational per perspective to, to, to do business there. Mm. It's an interesting one because obviously Bangladesh is another sort of huge producer of, of clothing and garments mm. and, and shoes and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, you mentioned a little bit earlier there, but you know, about being a sort of a conscientious consumer that maybe mm. if you're smaller, you buy stuff that's sort of na producerat, as we say in Swedish, it's produced mm. locally. Is mm. that the future, Anna, or is China going to continue to be the factory of the world in 2050, do you think? I don't think they will continue to be the factory of the world. Absolutely not. They don't want to be that either. I think they're consciously kind of moving away from being the at least the garment manufacturer of the world. Uh, and they want to shift more towards tech, technology and, and things like that and that kind of production um, and capacity. Uh, so, so I don't think so. But, but I, but I, I still believe that Bangladesh and some of the African countries and so on are, are on the rise and will be, you know, they, they will be an option, uh, if not for that Asian domestic market. I mean, for, for that market, they will always be uh, kind of a, an important player. For the European buyers, um, I think it's shifting towards more locally produced. Produced, but it will. I don't think. I think we're going to be 
it's it's far away until we have that type of capacity that we have that we find in Asia today to kind of meet our needs. Um, so there would always be production still in Asia for us to you know to consider. Hmm. Um, you're looking very well there. You're you've got your short hair ready to go. Are, can we expect to see you back on a Gaelic football field anytime soon? I mean, the yeah. tenth anniversary of the Gales has been postponed a little bit by COVID, but will we be seeing you in August? Would you say when there's a tournament in Stockholm? I would love to. Is there a tournament in Stockholm in August? There's a tournament in Stockholm in August. I shall send you the date afterwards. But do you think uh, you'll come out of retirement for that one? Yeah, I can. I let's <laughs> say that I do. It's it's uh, it's decided now. Absolutely, you'll see me on the pitch. I mean, maybe I need to get the li- a few practice sessions in before. But absolutely, of course, I'll be there. That's brilliant because we've had you know we've been onto the likes of Claire King, Veronica Tillander. They're still playing. You know, oh. Emma Ridge is still playing. So there's still loads of people that you know. And we're hoping to get as many of the those girls back as possible when we play here in Stockholm. So it would be oh. magnificent to have you back. Do you miss it at all, Anna? I do, I do. But my issue is that unless I'm there and doing it, it's kind of not at the top of my mind. So I yeah. think the minute I go out and I start, you know, the first session I will go out and, and do after that, I, there's no turning back for me, then I will be back. But because I've been away from it for such a long time now, I don't think of it uh, that often. But the moment I go out there, then I'm going to be like, okay, and now I'm I'm back. I'm doing this now. <laughs> so, you you yeah. always had this fantastic move, which is actually kind of illegal, but you did it really, really well, right? But uh, you know the one as well, I don't know you? Which you, one where you're running, and you just push somebody off just a little bit, and you take <laughs> off with the ball there. And every time I see you doing that, you're just you're so concentrated and you're so in the moment. And it's just yeah. it's such a brilliant thing to see a girl from Squana doing this as if she's been doing it all her life. And in fairness, you've been doing it for nearly half your life now. But look at I shall send you the date of that tour. Tournament. And if I have to come to your house and drive you down there, I shall do so. <laughs> but uh, to try to be out in Scarpneck. But for now, Anna Rungard, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you, Phil. It was great speaking to you. Gaelic footballing legend that is Anna Rungord. And it's amazing. Like, it's, I often find myself standing there watching Anna play. I go, she must be playing this game all her life. She's just such an incredible, natural Gaelic footballer who takes the skills that she has and just makes it like just an amazing footballer. And as you heard there, a wonderful person. And we're looking forward uh, to having her back again. Now, just in my own defence, right, uh, I think at the time that Anna was trying to get in touch with us, we actually had two mail addresses that were uh, circulating around Stockholm. And myself and Colin Courtney from County Kerry had decided that, okay, we'll go with one of the mail addresses. And I think that Anna's mails were winded up in uh, the, mail addre- the mail address that we sort of quickly abandoned. And that's why we didn't get back to her, because um, it was one of those things that as soon as we got her on board, we really wanted the women's section to be flying. And my Jesus, there was no better woman. Um, we'll have to see if we can get Colin Courtney out of retirement as well for this tournament that's coming up at the end of August. If you know anybody who used to play for the Gales, man or woman, get in touch with them now, right? Because... This tournament is going to be a Scalpnik Sport Felt. Uh, if I click on my wee calendar here, there'll be a couple of clicky noises in the background and we'll see what we got in August. It is on the 27th of August. It's going to be a Scalpnik Sport Felt. Um, 
if you know anybody who's played, if you know anybody who does play, if you know anybody who wants to play, anybody who wants to get involved, let's aim for that, right? So for the month of August, we'll have a few training sessions, get back together. Uh, like they said in the Blues Brothers, uh, we'll be getting the band back together and uh, try to get some of those older players out there again and get stuck in and just enjoy the day and play football for the sake of enjoying it. Because I mean, I loved playing football with Kevin Carroll and with John Carroll and with Colin Courtney and with Niall Scullion and that. And it doesn't take that much. And to be honest, I don't care about winning. I just care about getting on the ball with the lads again and having a bit of crack and, and that kind of thing and you know we'll go in there some of the teams will be really good some of the teams will be really competitive and I'm hoping the Stockholm A team will be really competitive but if you're playing in the B or the C team it doesn't matter it's about enjoying yourself and that and we'll try to structure the competition so that the teams are of, of a similar level so that you know a C team won't be going up against the A team so get involved join in be part of it, as we used to say. You know, Keith Hearn is probably training for a marathon somewhere, but sure, we'll get him in there as well if we can, and Carl Lambert and whoever else, you know. It'd be great, because we never got the chance, because of the pandemic, to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Stockholm Gales, which came up there in 2010, I think it was, and I think maybe the first game, uh, the anniversary of the first game would have been 2011. Uh, now, jeez, that's a bit of historical revisionism. I'm getting so old now, I can't even remember what year these things happened. Anyway, on to our second interview of the week, right? And this is, a, this is one of those things that just happens, right? Um, many of you will know uh, an Irish uh, internet sensation, a comedian called Farmer Michael, right? It's a character done by Steve O'Timothy, who's from County Galway. And Steve-O just sort of shot to fame. He's the man you'll see sitting in his car shouting at his poor wife, Kathleen, as she talks to him about various different subjects. And Steve-O somebody I've known for a while. I actually interviewed him back at the start of the pandemic as a little bit of a sort of YouTube project. Um, Steve-O was paralysed in an accident that, as he says himself, is entirely his own fault. He was on a motorbike drunk uh, and he came off the motorbike. Another man was killed and Steve-O was paralysed. And, you know, I mean, he doesn't go around the place sort of, you know, looking for sympathy for that. He knows that what he did was wrong, etc., etc. He's sort of served his, his sentence and is now trying to put his life back together but he became this huge internet sensation of a comedian and a few years ago a fellow I trained with called Mickey Pastor that I trained jiu-jitsu with sent me a link to Steve-O in Galway in his car and it's gone how big is this guy how big is this internet comedian if somebody is sending me links to what he does and him and Galway sitting in, the, in his car in his driveway making these funny sketches right so uh, then uh, on Steve on social media recently, I saw that a man named Marcus Schilling in Stockholm had ordered one of Steve-O's uh, T-shirts. I think it's the one that says there's no alcoholics in Ireland. Uh, and it, like, you know, it's, he has these sort of various different uh, clips that are really, really funny or are really, really well known. And he's made a few of them into T-shirts. And Marcus had bought one of them. And I got, okay, why is this lad in Stockholm? And I looked at the name and I went, okay, Marcus, that's a bit of a, a Swedish kind of a name there. So I have to get in touch with this lad. And it turned out that Marcus was far more than what I had expected, right? Marcus is from the Isle of Man, which, as we all know, is Irish when we've had enough points, right? We claim them as our own island people like our good selves. Um, so I decided I'd have to get in touch with him and find out his story. And it's fantastic because Marcus has been living here for a long time, but he's also involved in two leisure pursuits that are somewhat theatrical, being um, stand-up comedy and professional wrestling. You're going to want to hear this now, aren't you? So uh, without further ado, I spoke to Marcus last night and it was just one of those fascinating conversations that you just don't know where it's going to go. And it was great. And there's loads of details in there. So if you're interested in stand-up comedy, I love stand-up comedy. Not performing it, but watching it. So I'm going to be going to see Marcus and the other uh, great comedians that are here in Sweden. But uh, this is Marcus from the Isle of Man and his life as a funny man and indeed as Marcus the Man, his professional wrestling character.
obvious place to start is uh, how did you end up buying one of Steve O'Timothy's Father, My- uh, Fa- Father Michael, Farmer Michael t-shirts that I saw you wearing on Facebook? Yeah, uh, hi, Philip. Yeah, no, it's... Um... No, it started. I was, I've been a big fan of his uh, for a couple of years now. Uh, I started following his exploits on YouTube and following him on Facebook. I'm sure a lot of people saw the, the initial videos he had with uh, "There's no alcoholics in Ireland." Uh, yeah. Became like a viral phenomenon, um, and from that, I've, I see like a lot of uh, like the older kind of like '90s comedy in what he does. Um, and he's like breaking boundaries and things now and his personal story as well if everyone looks into that is also something i've followed uh so i think it's very uh, inspirational very funny and uh, breaking a lot of boundaries uh you're involved in stand-up comedy yourself here in sweden if i'm not mistaken uh, what brought you into that world yeah uh, it was like a, a lot of things um we had this thing called the the, the pandemic you might have heard about it but the uh, corona thing but somewhere i don't know, you know. it kind of turned <laughs> I, everything upside down for a while <laughs> and you found the comedy in that is what you're saying isn't it? Well, well basically i was i was forced to do something um beforehand doing the comedy my big uh, thing i did before in Stockholm when I came here is uh, involved in a company called Stockholm Wrestling. I'm actually one of the uh, professional wrestlers in that group. Uh, and having having the rules as we had it with, uh, with the pandemic and the two meters distance between people, we weren't having you know, such an easy time to have shows, put shows on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was looking ridiculous enough as it was already with, uh, with the wrestling moves. Keeping two meters distance would have made it impossible. <laughs> Uh, so it looks into and the comedy shows were running still uh, quite a few places and they were having shows every night at a place called Big Ben it's uh, Mount. and uh, one of my friends who I knew who was a fan of the wrestling was there and uh, doing a stand-up about seven minutes each and every night to train on it and I was like I, I can give this a go I could try this as well I've got a few funny stories and um, where I come from and everything and things I've experienced while being here uh, the big thing with, with Big Ben is that they have international nights and you can and everybody can speak in English and uh, expect like English comics there. So I thought well, I'll give that a go. I've been uh, going regularly there ever since. How terrifying was it the first time you stood up in front of people and went, hey, I'm funny? <laughs> the thing is like... I, you expect them to laugh for some reason you know the, the thing that's we expect at first is don't freeze up on stage they're going to laugh because i sound funny if i'm trying to speak swedish and the words you know come out all wrong uh the sympathy laugh but i thought i'll take that at the beginning but i did my first like proper set in english but i practiced it for hours and hours days and days before i know people wouldn't understand it's like you have five minutes on the stage but the amount of hours that go into it beforehand to try to remember and think of all the things you're going to say what's going to happen if hecklers you know say things have i got an answer for that trying to prepare so much for just five minutes but yeah getting the first hurdle of actually getting up there was the big thing and then after that i was like oh that wasn't as hard as i thought it would be <laughs> in the first place uh, what's it like the first time you've really like i say you've rehearsed this for hours and hours and hours and the first time somebody laughs at the first line of your set i've heard a lot of comics like you know they almost feel like it's you know the first time they took it taking heroin this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to them you know now we're not condoning drug use on this podcast marcus no, but would you say course. there's any similarities it's the thing is that like you want to get back to that moment 
again, it's like, I would say the first couple of times you do it, you're a bit shaky. I'd say like the third or fourth gig, and you're like, okay, I kind of know my stuff, and people are laughing. Mm. And there's quite a lot of like audience members there. You know, we had about 50, 60, something like 75 people there. Yeah. And when they're all like there and like laughing, and you're like, oh, I'm an amateur comedian, you know, doing this, you know, trying to like just get my feet wet in this. And you're right, it's like, yeah, I want to get back to that feeling. I want to get back to, I've got to write new material. I'm like, oh, what if my next joke doesn't work as well? Do I go back to doing what I'm doing all the time? Uh, but yeah, you just try and get better and better and keep going after those laughs. Um, you hear, like every comic has their horror stories as well of, you know, I remember DJ saying to me many years ago, used to DJ in Dublin, and we used to play in a lot of college bars and that, right? And we used to meet up at this kebab place afterwards. And one of the lads came in uh, one night, he said, oh, I just had one of those nights. And uh, I said, what, one of what nights? Oh, you know those nights where nobody danced? And I went, I fucking <laughs> never had that happen to me. How bad are you? You know, that's happened. But as comedians call it corpsing, where they just go out there and it's just nothing happens and you toddle off the stage. I mean, have you ever had an, a, sort of an unfortunate night, that, night like that where your timing was off or that kind of thing? There's been a, there's been a couple of those uh, kind of nights, one quite recently. But the one that I remember the most was when I went there on like an, an odd day, the certain days where the English comedians, you know, have more support, more people there. But I think I went there on a Friday, you know, the, the time to go there before people are heading to another place, another night out. Mm. And I went there, like, the first thing I said was like, oh, does anybody mind if I, if I, you know, if I just talk in English tonight? And the whole place was quiet. And one guy at the back, just like in a really like low voice, he must have been about his, his 50s, he just said, nay. <laughs> and the whole place was quiet. I was like, all right where do I go from here? <laughs> like, I was like, Stand I there for five it? minutes, go, right, well, I've got the five like, minutes. Well, yeah, yeah, you've got five minutes. You guys don't want to hear me. And uh, this guy has clearly made his opinion known to everybody. So I was like, but then you're going to think, when that happens at the start, it's like, you could just you could just build up from there. You know, it's not going to get lower than that. And you try and build up and try and win him over by the end. Um, but but honestly, that this last, last week when I was there, it wasn't bad, I and mean, I thought my performance was okay, but it was just because it was basically only the other comedians there. We were, like, outnumbering the amount of, you know, people paying audience members by about two to one. So, like, 15 comedians there, seven people paying to go see the show. So that was that was kind of a weird one for everybody there. And, like, you could just see the motivation level losing for every comic, you know, that went on stage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what do you do when that happens? Because, like, you know, if there's no audience there, do you sort of do the comics play to one another and try to impress one another, or how do you handle that on stage? The thing is, that when I talk to people about that, and this is the, the, the funniest thing with it, it's like you, as I say, you hype yourself up before you get there, and then you you don't realize until you get through the door, go down in the cellar, and you see, like, oh, there's nobody here. So then you think, okay, I've got some material I want to try out. How is this mm. going to work? And what comics usually do is like, okay, we'll, we'll try something different or maybe start the set a little bit differently, try and end on, you know, because most people have the usual kind of endings or the go-to things. Mm-hmm. So they'll try and shift it around a bit. Uh, so I tried a whole new thing. I just started singing karaoke when I started when I came up on stage and I just pretended that I'd gone to the wrong place. So I was like, what is this? Isn't, this isn't like uh, Gran Jägen's karaoke for Freda. <laughs> You know, I just started leading with that. And I was just like, because people would be like, oh, is he serious or is he just, you know? Uh, but the thing with that one, when we had it last Thursday, all the comedians were kind of in the same kind of like funk after the first half of the show was done. So yeah. all of us English comedians then just went upstairs, like to the bar up there. And we all sat just around the table, just 
sharing stories with each other and having a laugh. And I was like, if they'd have just had this downstairs like half an hour ago, it would have been such much of like a bit of a show, like a, like a round table with the comedians. That would be yeah. more entertaining than what we actually just tried to perform. And there'd probably be a hundred people paying to be there as well. Exactly. We could have like <laughs> live streamed it and everything. I was like, oh, this is what we should have been doing. But, you know, in hindsight... <laughs> Yeah, but that's it. I mean, that'll be the next thing. It'll be like 10 comedians on the stage at once, you know? But what does your uh, writing process look like, Marcus? Do you go around the place with a notebook writing down every funny thought that you have? Do you, do you sort of speak into your phone on the bus, going, oh, I have to get this down now? Or, you know, how does that look? It could be, uh, yeah, Google Documents helps a lot with that one. Uh, having a, a document for the next show. So I usually know, like, okay, next week I'll be going on and, and doing it this day. So I'll, the week before, just write stuff in. Uh, sometimes I have ideas just on I try and do like my work colleagues I have an idea with them and if they don't laugh I usually think all right now how am I going to try and convince them that I'm funny with this idea <laughs> I sometimes get really stubborn with it I like I have an idea about uh, like there's a yeah a Thomas Ledeen song for instance which is called uh, Solomon Ekot I mean you've lived yes. in Sweden long enough you know how many Yes, long enough to know and hate it. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So I looked it up. It was like, oh, it's, it came out in 1982. That's exactly 40 years ago. So I was like, I've got to make a joke out of that somehow. So that's kind of in my set now. Um, but I like suggest things like that to my colleagues. And I'm like, what? We don't understand. This isn't funny. Um, then I was like, how am I going to craft this joke? So it actually yeah. has a start, a middle and a punchline, which can be performed. Um, so it's basically it's stubbornness, really, and things that I think are funny in the Swedish culture that, that I try and bring, like with a um, kind of like a British view on it. And then how can I like bring it back to, okay, I see this, I see it this way. How can I then replay this for a Swedish audience? And then how will they find it funny? Um, but as I say, I'm still, I'm still trying and still like finding my feet in this world. <laughs> Like a lot of people will tell you that a good joke is like science or like, you know, it's like a recipe that you need to have certain ingredients for that to work. How much do you sort of lift the bonnet on it and sort of go, okay, like you said, you know, the joke has to have a start, a beginning and an end. You know, there has to be a lead up, a setup, there has to be a punchline. Do you get sort of nerdy about that or do you just go, no, this I'm naturally funny. So I'm going to try to find these stories and these jokes within the sort of rhythms of the way I usually speak. It's... It is like science, exactly as you're saying. And I didn't realize that until getting into it so much. I like grew up watching like a lot of comedians, like uh, a lot of Irish comedians, like Dara O'Brien, uh, mm. uh, no, Dylan Moran, I've seen a lot of times, Dermot Morgan, uh, Tommy Tiernan, he is brilliant with his stand-up, um, yeah. with Irish comics. And you kind of think you see and it looks so natural and everything they do and then you realize and then you're actually going through the process and talking to other comics like one-on-one they see like how they put their intonations on different words Mm. and how they can change a sentence or where they can move things around what they do with their hands how they move on stage well it looks very natural and it looks like it's all part of something which is very spontaneous to make it look spontaneous is actually a part of uh the, the showmanship, which actually makes makes the jokes work, uh, and gives the audience the feeling of oh, they're just coming up with this stuff like off the cuff. Hmm. Um, 
Yeah. I often wondered about that, Marcus, because like, say Tommy Tiernan goes out like a million date world tour. Do you think he changes his material, you know, from uh, over the course of that tour or does it stay pretty much the same? Because you can't, obviously you can't go writing a new set every night. He actually did. I don't know if you were here at that point. He did improvise an entire show one night at the Raw Comedy Club. And part of it was like was the most amazing and the funniest thing I've ever seen. And the rest of it just fell completely flat. But it was one of the most amazing pieces of theatre or art I've ever seen, you know. So, you would you do you think you get bored repeating the same lines night after night after night if you were doing this professionally? That's a good that's a good question. If I had the you know if you're doing it professionally, you'd have the time to, to think it out, and then you'd have the, the the way of doing it that you'd have like a pride in your performance. So like the performing of it would be as much of, of writing new material, I'd say. Um, but as I say, I've seen comedians as well doing the same thing without variation. Uh, night after night, uh, people have seen that on the professional thing and like in the amateur circles that I run in. Um, but yeah, but people like Tommy Tune, and I think he's, you know, wouldn't be a stretch to go off the level, say he's with his talk show and everything to say he's like on, on a genius level with this. Mm. Like he can come up with stuff off the cuff. He can see an audience and see people who, who who are like looking funny or react funnily and then he can spin with that and go in a different direction. And I think with his upbringing and the people who are around him, he'll have enough like life experience to kind of draw from things as well. Mm. But I agree, he wouldn't write, he wouldn't be able to write a whole new show every night, but he could definitely use a framework, I'd say, and then could probably deviate from that. And if it's feeling like it's going very well in a certain direction, then he'd probably be happy just to, to keep going in that direction until the show would find its conclusion. Darrow Brain, of course, is famous for that as well. Sort of talking to people in the front row of the audience, and all of a sudden you find that like he's just done twenty minutes, and everybody's been splitting their sides, and he's never met these people before. You know, could I sort of back up the truck just a little bit before you went on stage in Big Ben? That's on Souther, isn't it? Somewhere near. That's uh, Sodermalm at Folkungagata. Yeah, I've actually yeah. been there a couple of times with a couple of Swedish comics. But how did you arrive in Sweden? Because we, we've adjusted the geographical catchment area of the podcast to have you on because you're yeah. actually from the Isle of Man rather than Ireland. Ireland right? I was thinking that I thought that would disqualify me like originally. No, like no, 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 I was no. like, well, I'm from the I was like, well, I'm from at least from the south side of the island, you know, from there you go. Well, so I, can, I can see the mountains of Mourne from where I am. So it's yeah, we, we claim all those <laughs> islands, you know, the more drinks we have, we claim about Rock All, the Isle of Man, the whole lot, you know. <laughs> What yeah, was it like, like growing it, up there? Yeah. Because it's not the biggest place in the world, is it? It's it's not. And we only have about, about 80,000 people there. It was obviously a bit less when, when I grew up there. Um, but yeah, but a lot of people obviously come over from from Ireland, Northern Ireland, and came and settled over there as well, um, you know, during the, the times of the late 80s and 90s. So a lot of people that I grew up with and people around were from, were from Ireland. It's very similar to the Irish communities is very similar to the villages around the coast of Ireland is very similar to how the Isle of Man is um, in our mentality and our way of being our sense of humor our music um, so it was very it was a very nice very like safe place to to grow up in and I lived there until 2006 is when I moved over to Sweden so I've been I've been here yeah 16 years this year do, do, do you mind me asking what it was that brought you here, my friend? Uh, yeah, uh, it was uh, it was a Swedish girl looking for, for souvenirs. No the, way. Have you ever heard of that before? I mean, it's like a unique story. No one's that, ever, it's never happened. That needs to go in your set. I have literally never heard of that before. 
Oh my lord! It seems to be. I don't know. I don't know. They teach something. It's like there must be like a grade between like when they're like thirteen, fourteen, and fifty. It's a secret lesson that they go into. It's like right, girls. Now we're going to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> this age, Here's how to get capture a, a foreigner. <laughs> you're going to do this and say this, and then bring him back, and then this is how if the whole stone works, and then. <laughs> my god he has a whole vocabulary and everything and is the same girl still on the scene or did you stay here despite her no we got we got uh, married and everything uh, but we uh, got divorced uh, recently uh, two years I'm sorry ago to hear. oh it's all right we've got a son together he's wonderful his name's jamie <laughs> yeah. and that's <laughs> is things... that is jamie what sort of keeps you here in sweden then yeah well i'm i i've a swedish citizen and i like I love Stockholm, the city. It's uh, it's my home now. I've, I just, I've nearly lived as long of here as I lived on the Isle of Man. I've only lived in two places: it's the Isle of Man and here. And this is yeah, this is my home now. And I've got a new, new apartments, a new new life, new. I mean, this is this is where I live, and I and I love it here. And if Philip yourself, you've stayed here. How long have you been living here? It was for? 23 years a couple of weeks ago, which is like, wow. you know, and you never expect that. You know, I always go back to Maria saying, you know, let's try living in Sweden for a year or two. And mm. 23 years later, there's a Volvo in the garage and you have two kids and you go, how the fuck did this happen? You know, was I not paying attention at some point? No, exactly. Yeah. No, it's but, like but the like talking head song. You know, it's like. <laughs> how did I get here? Exactly. You know? But like yourself, yeah. Marcus, I wouldn't change anything and I wouldn't, you know, I've been all over the place. I keep coming back here you know but it would be remiss of me you let something slip there in the conversation earlier on that i have to get back to right mm. stockholm wrestling can you explain that to me yeah as i say i'm a bit of an oddball i have <laughs> a no. few of these uh, uh things that i like uh no but i've always i've always had a big interest in wrestling growing up and i did start training back in the isle of man and Traveled around a bit to some wrestling. And when I came to Sweden, when I came to Stockholm, you know, professional wrestling wasn't a thing here. They they mm-hmm. thought it was a it was just like a joke and it's just a big fake and ridiculous. And then around 2010, I think they opened a company here and some people who were like enthusiastic about it watching it on the on the TV channels, the satellite TV things. So I all get together and do a wrestling thing. And it's it's grown since then. So I joined the company there in 2014. Uh, and I've got a wrestling character called Marcus of Man, who's my wrestling nice. character. Yeah. And uh, so I based that on, uh, so I'm a bad guy character here. I based it on all the things that I that I dislike about <laughs> Great Britain. So I made Look, You're a, on an Irish podcast there. You can tell us them all, Pat. <laughs> so I was like, well, I hate the royal family. I hate royalists. Excellent. Excellent. And I thought, well... Dial of Man had a kind of joke thing whereby somebody claimed that they were the legitimate king of the Isle of Man because they did some ancestry DNA thing and nobody yeah. opposed it and he became King David of the Isle of Man. And I thought that is absolutely ridiculous. This would be perfect material for a wrestling character. <laughs> so my character claims he is directly you know, descended from royal blood. Uh, he's now going around the world being a professional wrestler. He loves Margaret Thatcher. He is... Uh, the king, like he loves Brexit. He thinks the UK is amazing. And uh, I have a chair, which I hit people with, which I wrote in uh, big letters on it, hard Brexit. Oh, God. But I, I do the whole thing like completely ironically and completely as a bad guy. But I have some people who are like fans who think, they don't think it's good, but they think it's entertaining that I do this. So I kind of run with a character. Mm. Um, but I had to. I had to recently like split my 
my Instagram and my other things, you know, to be like, this is my wrestling life. This is my real life. So people don't get confused. Yeah. Um, do you get Swedes turning up at that? Because I mean, wrestling, Frank and the Sean, that was a big sport here in Olympic terms, Greco-Roman yeah. wrestling, freestyle wrestling. Do you get people who sort of mistake professional wrestling for the actual sport of wrestling? Well, the, I don't think the mistake we've tried and like present it as like an underground kind of thing. Uh, so it's like, so it's more like a punk rock show, let's say, when, when mm. they can find out about it. But we have a lot of people, or people come out to me who I meet or at parties or questioning about it. Like, this is, you know, we didn't know this was in Sweden or this isn't, this isn't the thing we expect to see here. People don't really know what to expect when they go to a wrestling show but mm. i think when people actually go and they buy a ticket and head down i think it's very good for swedish people i mean traditionally as soon as swedish people can be quite reserved and be quite quiet mm. but then when they get a couple of drinks and then they go to a place then they're like then they'd like decide they want to speak english to everybody then they want to be friends with everybody mm. if they go to buy a ticket for a wrestling show it's kind of like it gives them an excuse to be very like non-swedish in a way so they can go, they can go down into the arena, they see there's a ring, they see other people there shouting and cheering and you know, booing the people they hate, cheering the people they like. And it gives them a chance to to like really like get in to the action, to get into the theatre of everything there. Mm. Um, even though it's not generally something which is in their culture from the beginning. Where, where does your love of that come from? Because you, it used to be called the World Wrestling Federation. Did you sort of watch that growing up and think, I want to do that? Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, yeah, I watched it from a very young age. I was like jumping off uh, jumping off my wall in my back garden in the bushes, pretending I was Macho Man Randy Savage at like at age of four. Um, <laughs> but as I said, the Isle of Man isn't such a big place. So there wasn't such, there wasn't so many avenues I could take there to, to learn. So I had to go over to England to start to learn to wrestle. Yeah. Uh, and then try and like book the people coming over and wrestling tours when they came over to, to the Isle of Man to try and like help on the shows and start with that. But uh, it was something I wanted to do like from a young age. But when, you know, when I got a bit older, when I got to like 17, 18, I was like, I've got to find a, or do like a proper job and something with that. And have to maybe have this as like a, a thing on the back burner. Mm. So I had a couple of years whereby I just, I didn't do much with that at all. And then, and then in my mid twenties, I was like, well, I think I can do this. And now it's like now or never, if I don't give it a really good shot to do this. Um, so now it's, it's basically my, my second job uh, as a professional wrestler. Mm. I mean, is it possible to make money at that kind of thing in Sweden, Marcus? Yeah, definitely. It's it's uh, in Sweden. It, it it depends to put on like events to go to get people like to come to the shows and everything. So it's still growing, uh, not so much. But as a as a novelty thing, it's uh, it's got it's got people who are very like interested in that for for different like reasons, um, like certain like corporations or parties might pay to have like a wrestling event. Yeah. Uh, as part of other things so that's the stuff we're involved in people want to do bachelor parties or even hen nights that's also a big thing uh, but uh, i travel over like over europe and do wrestling shows events in other places in in denmark it's very popular right now they're having a, like a wrestling wrestling boom in copenhagen so it can be mm. there like once a month doing shows as well you know schedule yeah. permitting so in in stockholm as i say it's it's, it's a scene that's growing but having a base from here is like a good like hub to travel from to either go to the UK or to Denmark or to like yeah. mainland Europe. So 
Yeah, I've, seen, I've seen one of the lads who's involved in uh, Gaelic football in Helsinki, and I've seen him doing it on Facebook and Instagram and that kind of thing. I thought, oh, you know, oh, that's great, you know, to see that there's people who are doing that. But there's actually a scene out there where people are going to shows, people are putting on shows, and you know, people are sort of in, enjoying the the shows that you're putting on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like small scenes everywhere. I mean, the Stockholm has a couple of promotions. Gothenburg has a place. Uh, down in Malmo, I go and wrestle quite a lot. And Finland, Norway, uh, but as I say, Denmark is uh, is going through a really like wrestling uh, wrestling boom right now with three big companies and one of them putting putting a lot of money in production into the shows, you know, to make it look more mainstream. So, so it's you know, I think big things coming out of Denmark for the future. We can see maybe like a TV show or something here. How difficult is it physically, Marcus? To do the wrestling, it's uh, uh, a it's, it's a lot more difficult the... than the stand-up, I would imagine. <laughs> oh no, no, stand-up's much more brutal. Believe me, they throw <laughs> things. I'm like a duck. Uh, no, I mean for the for the wrestling, it's um, there's certain aspects of it whereby there's a lot of theatrics involved in it, but it is very physically demanding. There's things that you can't. Um, that you can't fake, that you're going to be landing on the floor, that you're going to be working with other people, which mm. you're going to be thrown around, and then you're going to be, you know, maneuvered in a way which sometimes you can't predict what's going to happen. Mm. Uh, so if you have a weekend whereby you're doing a wrestling show on a Saturday and then on a Sunday, you know, on the Monday, you, you don't feel, <laughs> you know, on the Monday morning when you wake up, you don't feel much more like a human, you feel more like like a like a pounded piece of meat or something because you've been thrown around and beaten all that weekend. It's uh, it's a tough thing to do and you've got to have like like a strong mental capacity for it because there's a lot of things that go into it and then your body's got to hold up as well. Um, you've got to have the mind for it as well to learn to learn all the things you have to do and also, you know, to be able to work with people. Yeah, I'm just wondering how much you know. Much and all are two different art forms, right? But the wrestling and the stand-up comedy—they're both very sort of performance-based. Do you have a character when you do your stand-up, or are you just yourself? Is that the character? I'd say I have a character in it as well, but I'm trying to trying to change the character a little bit because I don't. I was thinking, am I going to be the, am I going to be the guy as as a comedian thing? Am I going to be the guy who is who comes from the Isle of Man and this is how he finds Sweden? I mean, is that going to be in my character? And I'm thinking there's there's too many like tropes that's been done before. I mean, as you say in this very podcast, like oh, the Swedish girl who goes over to yeah <laughs> to the British Isles and finds the guy and brings him back. I mean, that's the that's like something that's so normal or something that's so common that maybe I can think of something different. So I was like, well, what makes me unique? It's like okay, maybe the wrestling thing. It's very like niche and people don't know about wrestling, but I can maybe have, I could be, oh, he's the wrestling comedian. But then a part of my mind is like, well, do I want to be typecast to that as well? So I'm thinking, it's like, well, could I do a bit of both and then maybe add another completely surrealistic aspect into it? So we'll see. <laughs> but it is completely about building characters in, in comedy as well. Where do you want to go with all this, Marcus? Because there seems to be a great desire within you to to perform and to entertain and that kind of thing. Is this something that you'd love to do sort of full-time for a living or are you content to do this at the amateur comedy and a few pro wrestling shows and, and just see where it takes you? This is like the the, the time is the thing. Is that how much time would I be able to commit to everything? And it's like, would I? I think I probably should 
choose like one route and follow it but i don't think that my personality type works in that way i like to be involved in several different things like i like the training aspect of uh, wrestling as well like a few of my trainees who i've like got into that have i've started to go off to different things and i think as i get as i get older and start to think about stuff as well i think i'll maybe go into that route a little bit more mm. but then that in itself if i'm not you know performing wrestling in different places all the time then i can maybe commit more time to comedy and uh, work on my act there a little bit. So I think it's always going to be something, yeah, something I do as like my extra hobby and time, just how much time I could put into it. You know, could I do like 40 hour a week as a full time job and also put 30 to 40 hours a week into this? Mm. It could be possible. You like to keep yourself busy, my friend. If somebody was interested in getting into wrestling or pro wrestling or that kind of thing, how, how do what's the company called? Stockholm Wrestling. Is so St- Stockholm Wrestling. So it's S T H L M as the uh, yep. so initials everything without the vowels and wrestling. There's a website yep. stockholmwrestling.com. There's on Facebook as well. Uh, we have a, a training email there which you can contact. So there's like a contact form there to write to. Um, and to see you know all the stuff we're up to there, it's good to follow us on social media and everything. We've got a show coming up on the 9th of July in uh, Vesperia, our last show before like the summer break. Mm-hmm. So that'd be good to get to. Um, but yeah, we're always interested more people wanting to like discover wrestling because that's the that's the thing that's the thing we find as well when we talk to people. It's like we didn't know this existed here in Sweden. Yeah. We knew it was a thing on the TV in America, but oh, this. You know, Stockholm have its own wrestling company. It's like, yeah. yeah, we do, and we're these people, and we do this, and we have characters as well, and it's a good time. Um, so well, th- this is know. the thing when when I started talking to Steve about you, you know, when he showed me the picture of you in Stockholm wearing his t-shirt, that kind of thing, and then we started talking about you, and he goes, "Oh, he's a stand-up himself. All right, oh, and he does wrestling." I go, "This is like peeling a fucking onion. Like this guy has so many layers to him. It's incredible." <laughs> you know? So, but that's pretty. So the 9th of July, and it says S T K H L M wrestling. S-T-H-L-M wrestling. S-T-H-L-M wrestling. And people yeah. can find you on social media. Now, much and all as I would like to see, pretty much every listener to this podcast to take to try their hand at professional wrestling. I think we might be more likely to get a few stand-up comics out of them. So if they wanted to try out some material on Big Ben, if they're sitting there listening, yeah. go, oh, I'm funnier than those two fuckers. How would they go about doing that? Uh, so Big Ben is one of the most friendliest like, scenes that I've ever seen there. So there is... So I suggest do as I do. It's like go to the comedy club that's uh, Falcon and Gotham. They have comedy shows on through the summer every day of the week. They start at 8 p.m. They usually run about two hours. And I say go there and talk to the MC. So I'd say go there once, watch the show, see what the comics are there, see what the level is at. And then if you go there and you still feel confident, have a chat with the MC and they will you know, give you a, a chance to go on like the week after you pick a day and uh, they can go on and do, if you just want to do a couple of jokes for like three minutes, then they'll be very open for that as well. Five minutes. And if you think, Oh, I can, you know, do a bit of a longer set. They'll, uh, you know, they'll give you enough rope so you can hang yourself. It's no worries. <laughs> I'm trying to say, you rock up and go, oh, would you like to do three minutes or five minutes? Well, actually, I've written this Netflix special. Go, well, yeah, right actually, yeah exactly. So actually, I'd like to host this one next week. So what day can I do it? They're like, oh, go ahead, mate. No. Uh, but they're, they're so friendly there. They'll help you. And there's so many comics there who are very giving. 
uh, on, on a serious note, they will they will help out. They helped me out so much to get started in this. And um, yeah, everybody gives each other tips. Everybody gives each other support. So it's such a friendly atmosphere. So if, if somebody's listening and they have like a wish to get into to comedy, just try it out or just, you know, one time on the stage, head down to Big Ben any evening in the week in the summer and uh, the MCs there will point you in the right direction. Well, Marcus, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. I promise I'm going to see you down in Big Ben very, very soon indeed. The first chance I get, I'll be down there. I promise I won't heckle as well, because let's face it, most people are much funnier than me. You're just going to make me look like an Egypt. But uh, thanks very much for all the news about the wrestling and for the comedy shows. And sure, we'll all get down there soon. And you never know, one of these days, you might see an Irish person up on the stage who was inspired by this podcast. Oh, brilliant. Oh, I am looking forward to it. It's been great talking to you, Philip. Uh, my, the pleasure was all mine, Marcus. Thank you. All right, have a good one. Hello, listeners. My name is Farmer Michael from County Galway. I'd just like to say that everything that Marcus Fella said about me is not true. It's a good thing he libeled me on this terrible podcast that nobody listens to. Otherwise, I'd have to sue him. Jesus, Michael, that's a little bit harsh. I didn't think Marcus was mean about you at all. It's a good thing we've loads of money in the bank from Martin Hessian and those lovely po- people at Veerstums who regularly sponsor this podcast. And you can also get involved. Go to, we'll just take the Patreon for now. Go to patreon.com forward slash man in Stockholm. Sign up there. Five a month, five euros, 50 crowns. You know, there's 20 crowns there as well. Whatever you could do just to throw a few bob in the pot there. Um, there's definitely going to be one more podcast next week, right? Because we've already booked the interview and that'll be done and it'll be ready to go and it'll be put out there and then we'll see what happens after that because I have to go to England uh, very shortly for the Women's Euros and we'll see how well placed I am to do interviews for this podcast and sure if not we might uh, point out one or two other things that uh, point you back to a few of the older interviews maybe that we've done on the podcast or repackage them or whatever you know all about the recycling here all about the sustainability and that kind of thing as you can tell uh, by how fast I'm now speaking again it's a busy busy day ahead so I'm going to leave you with that Uh, have a great day have a great week have a great holiday wherever you look after yourself look after one another and uh, tune in again next week because there'll be at least one more podcast uh, in July at least one more and I think you're going to enjoy it good luck (laughs)